Welcome, everybody, to this midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I am your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Kartik Krishnayer is back with us, joining me from South Florida. I'm in Portland, Oregon. But we're going to be talking about European football first. Champions League is down to eight teams. We're going to talk about the last four round of 16 ties to lead the show. Then we're going to look forward to Europa League before we transition to talking about a very good weekend of action in the Premier League. But Kartik, let's start with Champions League first and Let's go ahead and tip our hat a little bit here to our core fan base and talk about the Premier League teams first, even though uh, the best match of this round took place in Germany on Wednesday. But first, let's talk about Arsenal sticking with Wednesday. Three, They lose at the Camp Nou to Barcelona 3-1. This one was about as expected, Kartik. I think you and I thought that there was a very slim chance that Arsenal was going to overturn their 2-0 loss at the Emirates three weeks ago. I gotta admit, I still wasn't, I still wasn't really feeling Arsenal's sense of urgency here. I know they created a lot of chances, but I just never sensed there was a moment in this tie that they really, or this game today, that they really went for it. Yeah, that's correct. Um, but then, I, but then, I, what else? I, I guess you can. Uh, well, well, saying, that, 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 well, yeah, but I, I don't know. But right, what, what I, else were they supposed to do? Yeah, right. That that was what I was about to say. So that that's correct. But then I don't know what else there's to do. I the the only thing is that if they gotten a result today, it would have one helped England efficient. I guess maybe that's the way I'm looking at things. Yeah. Uh, and, and two, uh, England's coefficient was more helped by what happened in the other game today, miraculously and probably incorrectly. But we, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then two, they have to stop this rod at some point. Okay, so their only win they have two wins in their last now eleven matches. Uh, in all competitions. One was against Leicester City, where uh, Leicester was reduced to 10 men, and uh, prior to Leicester being reduced to 10 men, they were ahead in the game, and they were bossing the game, so they were going to win that match. So Arsenal would have lost that game. And the other one was a replay against Hull City, uh, who could really couldn't afford the replay, because they were pushing for promotion in the... Uh, in, in, they're, push, they're still pushing for promotion from the championship. They've fallen now seven or eight points behind uh, top uh, top of the table Burnley. So uh, they were even rotating guys, believe it or not, the championship side against the Premier League team playing at home at the uh, KC Stadium. So uh, those are their two wins in their last 11. You would think maybe getting a draw here or, or uh, showing some, some signs would have stopped the rot before they go to Goodison this weekend for a very difficult game. Yeah. And they still have to go to uh, – uh, Upton Park to the Bowling Ground for the final time. You know, that's not going to be an easy one. And they still have to go to uh, City of Manchester, to the Etihad in the next couple of weeks. So they, uh, you would think they would have at least taken this opportunity to create some some momentum for themselves. And they have, they didn't. And they looked, uh, they looked quite poor, honestly. I think that's hits at the feeling that I was trying to get at. I didn't expect them to win. I did expect them to show some fight and maybe as we've seen Arsenal do at the Allianz in Champions League, at the New Camp in Champions League over the last three or four years. Go on the road, create create some sense of urgency, some drama, and even if you don't advance, at least have some kind of positivity to carry out of that and carry over into the league. And we didn't have any of that today. There definitely were some chances. They they uh, brought it back to 1-1 within the game at some point. They end up losing 3-1. But I don't think Arsenal's going home with any silver linings or any momentum in this one. And you said, use the phrase, stop the rot. I think that's such a great phrase because this rot has them within three points of West Ham United in fifth place. There's There needs to be an urgency in this Arsenal squad. I think fans have probably gotten to the point with them being so far back of Leicester that they're accepting that Champions League is probably all they can expect for from the season again, but 
the way the season is shaking out for both them and Manchester City, they need to be very, very careful that West, a West Ham team that really hasn't slipped at all this year is going to just steadily creep into that top four. On this show about Leicester, and they've had no dips in form this entire season. They've had mini dips, but no sustained dips. West Ham is the other team other than Spurs. Spurs had a Spurs dip was the first month, but. Uh, other than Spurs and Leicester, the, the two teams fighting for the title, that hasn't had a sustained dip in form. Their one rough patch was when Payet was injured and Village played for a lot of draws, and they got a lot of draws, but they, they haven't fallen off at any point. Now, I think there's a, some relief among Arsenal fans, uh, maybe not about among Manchester City supporters, because Manchester City fans like to see Manchester United lose, but uh, Manchester uh, Arsenal fans that uh, that Manchester United got that late goal and West Ham now with a thinner squad is going to have to play a replay at the bowling ground potentially. And that'll be the last FA cup match ever at that historic ground. So we should point that out. And then potentially an FA cup semifinal at Wembley in pretty quick succession. So that's, um, and it would be against a good Everton team. That's something that could derail West Ham's fourth place charge. But right now, if I'm Manchester city and Arsenal and I'd be very, very worried about getting caught. Now, the best thing going that Manchester City has going for them is that Arsenal isn't very good at this point in time. And the best thing Arsenal has going for them is that Manchester City isn't very good at this point in time. So <laughs> it, it, it's possible that they they could that you, West Ham could catch one of them uh, and, and the other one could fall out of the top four. And and so the other one stays in the top four. So that's that's really something that also has to be considered. And. Manchester United is still theoretically in with a shout. And as I said before, I think one of the good breaks for the teams that are in the top four currently, or I mean, Spurs and Leicester are in the top four for, because they've earned it. Arsenal and Manchester City are in it because by default at this point is that Liverpool lost that game to Manchester United in January. I still look back at that match and think if uh, the result had gone the other way, Liverpool would have gone on a run. They've shown that they're capable of that, and they'd be pushing for fourth right now. Maybe they would have already pushed into the top four and knocked either City or Arsenal out. So uh, that's the other thing that they, those two clubs have going for them. Let's go ahead and shift the focus to Manchester City. You talked about a lot of the issues surrounding them, but we haven't actually mentioned how they did midweek. They came back from their match at Dinamo Kiev in Ukraine with a 3-1 lead, so there really wasn't very much doubt headed into the second leg on Tuesday at the Etihad. Uh, second straight nil-nil draw for City coming off their weekend draw with Norwich. In that way, there were some similarities. There weren't a lot of great chances for City in this one, even though uh, they did create some. The best chances in this match came at the end of the game for Dinamo Kiev, where Joe Hart had to come up with a couple of uh, really good saves in order to preserve the nil-nil. Uh, in that way, this was a missed opportunity again for England to claim some much-needed uh, help with the UEFA coefficient. But ultimately, the worst thing to come out of this game for City, Kartik, is the situation in central defense, where both Vincent Kompany and um, Nicholas Otamendi had to be subbed off in the first half, o company, of course, being the big injury there. Yeah, Otamendi, Manuel Pellegrini hopes is going to be fit for the derby. There, there's a possibility he will be, so he might be back for Sunday's game. But company will be out again another month. It appears it was another calf injury, fourth of the year. Uh, this is the eighth in two seasons. It's a a, a non-contact injury, too. Yeah, non-contact injury. It's a recurring problem. Uh, for him, 
the thing that we have seen, though, is when he recovers, he's able to play at a very high level. His his form hasn't really dipped when, dipped when he's fit. And Manchester City defensively have been very good in the portions of the season he has played. Uh, unfortunately, the portions of the season they, he hasn't played, defensively they haven't been good and they've been dropping points or losing games in other competitions. And, and the, the correlation between his fitness and Manchester City's form is unmistakable. It, it's just there's no there, – there are very few other uh, uh, things you can draw – to relating to City's form. Also, when Yaya Torre doesn't play, Manchester City doesn't win, but that's been a recurring theme for six years. We've seen in, in uh, the times when Torre, this is why it's so hilarious that people make comments about Torre and uh, he's lazy and he's old and he's washed up and, and uh, uh, he doesn't care type of thing. We have seen in previous Januaries when he's gone to the Cup of African Nations, that's been when Manchester City's form has dipped. All three times he's gone to the Cup of African Nations uh, since he joined Manchester City, when he's gone into January, they've dipped in form uh, it's, it, all, all three times. So there's no it's, it's pretty irrefutable evidence. We also saw now the two games he's had to sit out uh, with uh, uh, for fitness issues because he, he's had to play a lot of minutes with cup competitions, League Cup final, 120 minutes there, scoring the winning penalty, 90 minutes in, in Kiev and, and the travel. Uh, he's, he's missed two games recently in in. in or three matches recently in other competitions, Manchester City have underperformed in those three games. It's it's not a it's mm. unmistakable the correlation. So Torre was playing yesterday and played very well. I think a lot of people who have been down on him saw that performance and saw again what he's capable of. But then again, the narrative and we talked about this with Lawrence several weeks back on the show. The narrative is then, oh well, he's lazy and he's not applying himself. No, he's an older player. He's about to turn 33. He has good days and bad days. Yeah. Uh, but he's still very, very instrumental in Manchester City and the way they operate under Manuel Pellegrini. Now, I, I, it'd probably be very different under Pep Guardiola. He's going to bring in a different system. They're going to play a different way. So maybe he won't mean as much to the club and, and he is going to get jettisoned. But maybe Guardiola has to look at this and see uh, the way he has featured as a – as a, as a supplementary kind of attacking player at times in the uh, in the Mancini years, but especially in the Pellegrini years, the way Pellegrini has really kind of built the team around him or, or, or fit in the other parts around him and, and pushed them into more advanced roles. Uh, he had 20 goals one season under Pellegrini, which is a ridiculous uh, return for, for a guy that's seen as a defensive midfielder or kind of a box-to-box midfielder at best. And again, you saw him at his very best in this game, getting other players involved, uh, bossing the midfield, really uh, linking up, and preventing uh, Dinamo from ever getting the kind of uh, opportunity in this match that they needed. Now, they, didn't, they did end up getting their opportunities, but it was after minute 80, and Joe Hart made two very good saves. And, and there was probably a penalty shout that, uh, uh, that should have been given. There was probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah, on Fernando. So, uh, and Yarmolenko was very unhappy, you could tell, um, it, uh, it was that was reacting with some disgust after that, but um, you know Manchester City's on to the to the quarterfinals and have an opportunity now to face uh, a, a perhaps a team that's uh, that's beatable. Yeah, we'll talk about the, who's advanced in a minute, but it is the first time in club history they've been this far. You saw that accomplishment 
go across the face of players like Joe Hart when the final whistle blew. So congratulations to Manchester City and Manchester City's fans, since I think probably more fans than players listen to this podcast. Uh, but let's go back to Vincent Company. You talked about Yaya Turi and uh, maybe Pep Guardiola needs to address the age of Yaya Turi. We talked about that a little bit a week ago when we talked about the rumors linking City to Ilkay Gundogan of Borussia Dortmund. But once you accept that Vincent Company is kind of apt to be broken at any time, injured at any time, these injuries are so frequent and so unpredictable, don't they need to go out and make a major purchase in central defense, even though they have made major purchases in central defense each of the last two summers? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yes. But that also tells us how bad that buying policy right. is. Right. Uh, it just makes those two signings, the Mangala and the Otamendi signings, just look even more absurd. And I guess I wouldn't give up on Otamendi because maybe he improves over the summer with a year in the team. But Mangala, to me, I just don't know what his peak is. I know you've said before that uh, there's a possibility that Pep comes in and uh, Mangala is a player that fits that system better. Uh, and as far as fitting Pep's system, I think Otamendi is a terrible fit because yeah. there's so many one-on-one matchups that defenders have to uh, have to win in that system, high up the field in that system. Mangala, to me, I think I've said this before, he just looks like, to me, somebody that should be playing at the highest levels in Serie A for a while. Right. Yeah, and I think that that helped uh, former Manchester City defender Stefan Savic, a young player, uh, when he played at Fiorentina, really develop into the kind of player that now is pretty good at uh, Atleti. You need that those games and that kind of less um, less intense. Of course, in Europe, you you have mistakes in you, right? If you have mistakes in you, you make them. Unfortunately, against the level of competition, the the this thing about Otamendi is interesting also because there has been now some reports, printed reports, published reports that Pep was talking to Soriano and Bergiristan in the summer and was encouraging the Blues brass to go after Kevin De Bruyne, saying, hey, 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 mm-hmm. hey I've, I've played against him in Serie A. This, this is the guy I want. And uh, very well-sourced published reports, so probably true. Clearly, Pep was only weighing in on that one transfer, because I owed Mendy, who, who was bought around the same time as De Bruyne, probably within a couple of days, is a player, as you said, uh, regardless of whether he's a good central defender or not, uh, he's a player who clearly doesn't fit the way Pep likes to play. I mean, he's, he's well, perhaps the opposite. I mean, can you imagine if, if he's out of position and he lunges and makes all these reckless challenges with Pep as his manager? Uh, Pellegrini seems to have tolerated it this season. Maybe he's had no choice. But mm-hmm. uh, Ote Mendy is a reckless player in addition to being um, a bad fit for Pep's system. Uh, that This having been said about uh, Otamendi, he does win a lot of kind of ridiculous challenges he makes. It's just, it always seems to be a, a yellow card or a red card waiting to happen uh, or uh, something worse. Hmm. Yeah, thinking back to how people talked about Nicolas Otamendi last year, I think what I remember is the people that cover Spain really lauding his leadership and his ability to, uh, to use a cliche, marshal Valencia's back line. And Thinking about how Valencia struggled this year, they've really missed that. The players that they've brought in have lacked that leadership. Uh, I'm not sure that they've missed his, I, I, I want to say athleticism, but 
really what we're talking about is kind of the skills beyond his mental capacity and his leadership that he brings. And uh, I think that's what we're talking about where Otamendi might lack under any manager that comes in. It just so happens that Pep Guardiola's system really stretch, stresses those two to three central defenders that he chooses at a time. Although, in fairness, kind of rarely stresses them because of the possession that his teams make uh, possess. But when they do get stressed, they are pressed to the max, as we saw today in Bayern versus UAV, at least the first half of it. But let's wait on that game for a little bit. Let's talk about uh, the other game that happened on Tuesday at Netico Madrid hosting PSV. This match returned to Spain after a nil-nil in Eindhoven, where PSV spent most of the second half down a man. Atleti were almost made to pay for not capitalizing on that, as this match went 120 minutes without a goal, and then ended with one of the more exciting, although not necessarily best, uh, penalty shootouts that we've seen in a long time. 8-7 to seven was the highest scoring shootout in UEFA competition history, Atletico Madrid converting on all their penalty kicks to go through, and Kartik, this is the danger of Atletico Madrid, as spectacular as they are defensively, for the second year in a row at this stage of the conversation, competition, They've had to resort to penalty kicks against lesser competition to go through. Last year it was Bayer Leverkusen taking them to uh, the tiebreaker. This year it was PSV. I guess this is the give and take that you have when you prioritize one end of the pitch over the other. Yeah, that very easily if a team uh, does the same thing to you and soaks up pressure, you're you're in, in trouble. And I, and I think they were actually even fortunate to win in the pe- in the penalty kick shootouts. I don't want to get into the analyzing PKs because they're <laughs> essentially very, um, they're, they're, it's just a crapshoot, right? There, but, but there was that one kick that uh, the PSV yeah. keeper, Zoot, put off of his left post and it ricocheted back across goal. You know, that really was a matter of inches. Yeah, and and at that point they lose the, the, shoot, the shootout because I think that was the fourth uh, penalty and then the PSV guy made the fifth and it would have been over. So that, uh, they've they seem very fortunate. I didn't see much uh, from them in this uh, in this match, and I feel like maybe their their run of having good strikers, the uh, Forlans and the Agueros and the the Falcals and the Costas, it, it's just kind of run out. Mm-hmm. And they they needed a David Villa. They needed that one guy, that one focal point. Mandzukic last season did well for them at times. Um, maybe they need Costa back. Maybe. I'm sure that, I'm sure that conversation was going to start soon. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I thought that they were just missing a dimension up top, even though I thought uh, Yannick Ferreira Carrasco played well. Uh, I thought Antoine Griezmann played well, but the combination just didn't really work in this game. PSV adjusted their system a little bit. Uh, Philip Koku went with three central defenders. He actually played a defender in midfield, too, and really locked it down. And, and thanks to Andres Guardado, they were able to create a number of chances going forward. And I think... Uh, even though I wouldn't say they controlled the match, I think through right, through uh, 90 minutes, they had the better chances in that one. And uh, they, they put one bar off the post in the second half. And so Atletico was a little bit lucky to get through. Uh, but let's talk about the most exciting match of the Champions League week, Bayern versus Juventus. Just like the first leg, this was a tale of two halves, where in turn, Bayern dominated the first half and then saw Juventus come back with two goals in the second. It was the opposite this time. Juventus scored two goals within the first 28 minutes for only to see Bayern come back late and eventually Byron scoring two goals in extra time to go through 6-4 on aggregate. Uh, Kartik, I want to hear your analysis of this before I offer anything because my first thing to say is something that's really cliched. It was just really a shame to see one of these two teams bow out at this level of the competition because Juventus kind of showed me that I've been underestimating them throughout this year because 
for the most part, they were absolutely Byron's equal throughout these, what, what was it, uh, 210 minutes. Yeah, I think also we're in a situation where they were uh, unfortunate because there was a perfectly good goal where Neuer made a hash of a clearance once again, uh, which he's doing regularly now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, Morata scored a perfectly onside goal. I mean, it wasn't yeah. even close. And the linesman uh, missed it. Uh, Cordado had a chance to score, uh, did all the hard work and couldn't uh, put uh, the finish in right before halftime. Mm-hmm. I, I felt Bayern were very fortunate, honestly, because they, they played so well for the first 60 minutes in Turin. But that last 30 minutes, they let their guard down. They let Juve back into the time. Juve came to uh, the Allianz today and, and they took it. They really did take it. They just, um, at some point, you run out of gas. Patrice Evra. In particular, an older player, I thought yeah. he had, had a brilliant match for about 80 minutes, ran out of gas, allowed that cross to come in from Coleman. Uh, a player, by the way, that I don't know why Juve didn't put a in the loan clause. Um, <laughs> we yeah, that, talk about that, they right? couldn't play against. Play well, against actually, them. in UEFA competition, that's illegal to do. Oh, okay. yeah, I just I learned that last year at some point. UEFA has actually outlawed that. So, which is why Alvaro Morata was able to play against Real Madrid last year. Uh, so, you know, at the club level, that's that's pretty common, especially uh, beyond. Even. Oh, that's right, and Courtois uh, two seasons ago, yeah, Atleti against Chelsea. That's right, I forgot about that. So, so um, yeah, so great finish by Coyman uh, to put this game out of reach, but I completely agree with you. Uh, at the same time, those things happen, and Juventus had another hour, uh, sorry, 75 minutes to put the game further away. It did feel like at the end of that first half, if Quadrata would have converted, that would have been an absolute death nail for Bayern to go into half down three goals instead of two. It just seems like there's some kind of mental block at that level that makes it really significant. Yeah, no, I think that they were in a very, very... Um tough situation mentally because I think they felt like they had done so much of the hard work. Now, this yeah. is, of course, a team that's won several consecutive Serie A titles. It's a team that got to the Champions League final last season. But they had daunting odds coming into this two into these two legs. And I think they had this feeling that they had um, they had kind of done the job and, and maybe hadn't gotten the breaks. <laughs> but um, they didn't see it out, right? And Bayern has so much firepower. And so many guys they can bring off their bench as they're beginning to get fit again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that you, you really wonder. And then defensively, Bayern were strong in the second half. They were able yeah. to, uh, because uh, Juve once again had their opportunities to get a third goal and put the tie out of, uh, you know, probably out of reach. And they, um, well, and, and they, they weren't able to take those opportunities. They weren't able to really test uh, Neuer in the second half the way they had in the first uh, Neuer uh, and Buffon, maybe the two best goalkeepers in the world, two of the top uh, four, I would say, if you put Bravo and De Gea in there. Uh, maybe I'm forgetting so. Maybe there's a fifth. But uh, it, it, they were going mano a mano, we, we were thinking would happen in this tie, and it didn't end up that way. It ended up being 6-4 on aggregate. Could have been much more. Uh, it could have been 8-6 or 10-8. Uh, there were so many chances created by these two teams in in, uh, in this uh, um over these two legs and not many notable saves from either keeper mm-hmm. that we can remember. No, I can't remember very many. Uh, although I think Neuer had a decent one in the uh, extra, I mean, it might've been an extra time, but it, um, maybe I was just comparing that to the performance over the rest of the 90 minutes today because uh, he had a couple of very just disastrous moments. 
Uh, some things that people are talking about after this one, uh, you know, Juventus lost Giorgio Cialini and Paolo Diavala going into this game, two very important players. I think a lot of people were pointing to that as kind of a what if, what if Juventus had these players for this game. But I also think it's worth remembering that Bayern is missing a lot of players, too. Uh, in midfield, in defense, they're also missing somebody like Arjen Robin too. So although they are getting some players back, uh, both of these sides were missing a number of players. I think rightly, too, people are pointing to the differences in substitutions where Max Allegri was kind of handcuffed by the fact that Sammy Kadira had to come off at some point for fitness reasons. Alvaro Morata had to come off for fitness reasons at some point. And Pep Guardiola had more flexibility with his substitutions to bring on somebody like a Kingsley Coleman, although all of Pep Guardiola's substitutions really worked. I think one thing that also needs to be mentioned is that Pep Guardiola made a concerted effort this offseason, this summer, to go out and get players that can threaten from wide areas, and possibly with situations like this in mind. So when you have players like Douglas Costa and Coleman coming in, and those players really paying off in situations like this, I think we also need to give Pep Guardiola credit there, and you have to think that Guardiola made some significant adjustments at halftime of this one uh, to give Bayern the impetus coming out of the break to make up their deficit. You know, At one point here, they were down 4-2 against a very good defensive team. I think the other thing that I was reminded of Kartik, um, I think this is a good reminder when we've seen games like the Mainz loss at home and going go, being shut out against Dortmund and the, these two games against Juventus where for a half each time they were the worst team. Bayern seems to be very much a rhythm team. And we saw against Wolfsburg earlier this year when Lewandowski exploded five, for five goals coming off the bench in the second half of that game. When they find their rhythm, they're almost impossible to to stop. And so I think a lot with Bayern is either throwing them off for their game or kind of keep them going, uh, keep them from getting going downhill. Because once they have that rhythm with each other, once they have the ability to move that ball quickly, those one touch passes to execute those passing rotations that they've practiced so much to get into those spaces that they know so well, it's just almost impossible to stop. And I. I have a hard time faulting Juventus uh, in that regard, Kartik, because although they did make the mistake of sitting back maybe a little bit too early and allowing Bayern to get that rhythm, once Bayern has that rhythm, I'm not sure that anybody can really stop them. No, I don't think anyone can in Europe other than possibly Barcelona because they'll have so much of the ball against them. Look, I don't think Real Madrid's going to stop them. I don't think... Uh, if Byron is fit, I don't think uh, we're going to see them stop by um, or who else. Well, Atleti, maybe, because Atleti is so focused defensively. That would be an interesting uh, quarterfinal tie yeah. if, if, if if that happened. But that's probably it. Those are probably the only two teams, Atleti and Barcelona, that we can see uh, beating or, or giving Byron a, a real run. I, I don't uh, I don't put Real Madrid in that category at all this season. Hmm. Eight teams left in the draw, three Spanish teams, Atletico, Barcelona, Real Madrid, two from Germany, Bayern Munich and Wolfsburg. Uh, England has one team, Manchester City, so does France, PSG, and Portugal, Benfica. Kartik, favorites in this tournament, to me it just seems like Barcelona's on another level, and then maybe after that we can start talking about Bayern and Atletico and maybe PSG. Yeah, yeah, those would be the, the uh, favorites in, in, in order for me as well. Be, well, maybe not in that order, it would be... Barcelona, then Bayern, then PSG, then Atleti, and then there. So there are four teams that can win the competition that are still in this competition. Then there are four outsiders. Of those four outsiders, 
Manchester City is probably the best bet. Look, Real Madrid is, is terrible this season. I I know they're sitting third in La Liga, and uh, in theory, they, 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 their uh, points total was, uh, is is good. But they've they, they've got kind of a, for those that don't watch the Spanish league closely, they, they've got there is a the table does lie a little bit there. They've been very relying on Kaylor Navas. They've been uh, relying on on late goals in some games. Uh, they they're just they're just not a good team. They're not at the level of the top two teams in Spain, which are Barcelona and Atleti, who who play very different styles of football. Real Madrid is far below those teams. Uh, they have uh, I think some internal intrigue, so I would put them sixth. Uh, seventh would be uh, Benfica, and eighth would be Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg is not going to be back in the Champions League next season, mm. uh, based on what's going on. I, they may not even be back in Europe next season. Yeah, uh, Bundesliga is very competitive. Bundesliga one and two are not very competitive. Obviously, there's a uh, yeah. I mean, they're competitive with one another, Bayern and, and Borussia Dortmund. But then there's about a 18 point gap or something between second place Dortmund and third place uh, Hertha. But there was a big logjam between third and eighth, and Wolfsburg is just they're at the bottom of that. And I'm not yeah. quite sure that they're going to be able to call their way back into this competition next year. Yeah. Wolfsburg and Bayer Leverkusen, both, both qualifiers for this competition. Now, both if you to even make Europa league next year, one of them probably will, at least one of them will. Um, so you kind of walk down the teams there. I want to tell you the matchups that I'm hoping for. The draw is Friday, and I'm really hoping that Wolfsburg and Benfica get drawn together. Cause then that means one of those two teams will make the final. And I'm also hoping that Manchester City will make the semifinals, I should say. And I'm also hoping that Manchester City and PSG get drawn together because then you have one of those giants that have been trying to break through. They'll also be in the semifinal, which would create two very loaded ties. I want to see Bayern and Atletico go against each other just for the contrast in styles. Um, and I don't really want to see Bayern go up against Real Madrid or Barcelona again. Mostly I want Barcelona and Real Madrid to come together again because I'm one of those sadists, Kartik, that can't get enough Clasicos, particularly when the two teams are in such different places. I love those Guardiola-Mourinho Clasicos just for the stylistic differences. And I really would like this Clasico too because it would just be so telling of Real Madrid, a team that started with Rafa Benitez this year and then has injected their chosen coach Zinedine Zidane into this equation. I think a lot of people thought they injected him too soon and that would be kind of a a very telling matchup. Okay, well, you want to inject somebody too soon? This is the consequences. You're a team that still is... Uh, making it to this level of Champions League and you might get embarrassed because of this because now you're going up against your rival you're not very good and here you go yeah I think those would be probably from from an idealist standpoint the the most uh, likely matchups uh, or the most intriguing matchups although there is some hope for a, a Pep versus Pellegrini matchup with Ooh. Bayern versus Manchester City uh, that would that, that will not be a competitive matchup on the pitch if Vincent and company is still injured yeah. so that's uh and but it might be competitive if he's if he's fit I, I'm, I'm i'm telling manchester city a completely different team defensively when he plays it, it's uh although it, it also speaks to manchester city's poor buying policy that the, a player who whose um purchase preceded the takeover is still kind of their core player yeah. <laughs> they don't buy uh they've had big money for eight eight years now mm. and it's still a player the two inherited players are uh, well joe hart also, the two inherited field players, Pablo Zavaleta and Vincent Company, uh, pre-takeover inherited players, are essentially still so tied to the heartbeat of the club. Um, PSG, this is an interesting time for Laurent Blanc. Um, there is some concern he can't get it done at the European level. 
I think they're going to need to get to the semifinals. If they get Barcelona, he'll get a pass. If they get anyone else, they're going to want mm. – uh, it doesn't matter if it's Real Madrid. Now, obviously, they, they were in a group with Real Madrid and finished behind them, which is pretty telling. They finished second in that group. Uh, but they're, uh, they're going to need to be in a position where they can um, – where they can get to the semifinals if they don't draw Barcelona. Otherwise, I think there's going to start to be questions again about him. And even though he's gotten the contract extension, you might see him out at the end of next season if then they bomb, bomb out on the quarterfinals around the 16 again next season. So I think this is actually very important for him, even though he just got a contract extension. I agree. I think uh, a lot of his coaching reputation right now is tied into whether he can go over this final hurdle with PSG. Uh, they're losing Zlatan Ibrahimovic at the end of this year. Maybe they'll be a better team for taking that tremendous salary and putting it back into the market. Obviously, they can afford tremendous transfer fees, but they're going to have to remake their team uh, this summer. It's very likely that Edison Cavani will be gone. I think a couple other players are, are going to be linked with China, too. Uh, Marquinhos is already being linked with a move to Barcelona. So uh, this might be... Not quite a last hurrah for this team, but they're going to have to spend some time next year reforging what they have now. And it's now time to test whether what they have now is good enough to meet that team's goals. Kartik, let's shift to Europa League very quickly because I'm not sure there's a lot that's compelling about the two Europa League ties that involve Premier League teams. Manchester United is hosting Liverpool. I think we expected this one to be a little bit more competitive, and, and maybe the Red Devils can turn this around, but based on the result last week in Anfield where Liverpool was the vastly superior team in taking a 2-0 lead, I'm not sure that a change in venue is going to change much about the dynamic between these no. two teams. Uh, De Gea also uh, was 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 big in that match. Uh, Liverpool were all over them. It was embarrassing. It really was, and and it, it kind of reinforced where we think these two teams are. Even though obviously Manchester United is ahead of them in the Premier League table and did the league double over them, there's just uh, with with Louis van Gaal in one job and Jurgen Klopp in the other, it just feels like the vibe, uh, the sense, the vibe around Liverpool was so positive, and I and. Uh, Lawrence has made a little bit of a mocking of it on this show, but it doesn't matter where Liverpool finishes in the table. No one's looking at them this season for mm -hmm. that. Look, uh, Klopp is going to rebuild this squad. He's injecting his views, his ideas, uh, his his karma, if you will, on the on this club, football club, and it's working. The supporters are behind him. Uh, they've, they've now had another very good run in a cup competition. Uh, and uh, yeah, things are looking on the up, whereas for Manchester United, it's just uh, – uh, more questions, um, one problem after another. Now there's a lot of talk that uh, uh, Jose Mourinho is no, is no longer uh, the um, the heir apparent there because uh, there is some concern, rightfully so, that he doesn't bloodlet young players well enough. So they might be looking at, at someone else, maybe a Simeone. Looks like Conte is going to be off the market. Looks like Conte is going to Chelsea. So there's a lot of confusion over Manchester United. Players don't know whether they're coming or going. I, I, I think uh, the, the, the squad is, is, is not stable. Uh, the, the veteran players uh, are, not, are not stable in, the, in their thought process, similar to what's happened at Manchester City. Manchester City, they know who's coming in, but it's a similar dynamic where they think the manager, where they know that manager is leaving. Here they think this manager is leaving. And it just shows. That's why you have such uneven performances. Although I have to say... Um, they had a pretty impressive fight back against a very good West Ham team in that uh, FA Cup quarterfinal match last week. They got it, they've now gotten it to a replay at the bowling ground. A replay they'll probably lose, but still, it showed me something uh, with Michael Carrick in the team and uh, Schweinsteiger in the team that they were able to, uh, to push on and get a result there. So maybe they can claw back two goals, but it's 
based on what we saw last week between these two teams, there was just a massive gulf, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I just it just felt like a four or five nil, and I, I think Liverpool can taste this, and Liverpool probably feels like uh, since Spurs played Dortmund, and one of them is going to be out, most likely Spurs. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. That um, if they don't get Dortmund, if they don't, if Klopp doesn't get his former team, that they can go all the way in this competition until they get Dortmund. Hmm. And then at that point, it's difficult. But if they somehow escape Dortmund in the next round, there are some very good teams left in the Europa League. But they're not going to be concerned about playing as concerned about playing a Shakhtar or, or or that one of those clubs. They're not in the FA Cup. Their league position doesn't matter at this point, and uh, they're all in on this competition. So I expect them to get a, a result uh, in this match, one-one. Maybe they win 2-1, and they're into the quarterfinals. For Manchester United, they've got the FA Cup left to play, and they've got to go to the bowling ground. That's a tough ask, but they're still technically they're still alive in that competition. Arsenal isn't, so yeah. um, they can look at it that way. Well, and, and they're still alive in the fight for fourth. Uh, they need to get something going. But as far as that fight for fourth is concerned, they have a very important match on Sunday. We're going to talk about that a lot uh, towards the end of the show. They're going to the Etihad. It's a derby. It's against the team that they're primarily chasing for fourth place, Manchester City. There's a short turnaround time between Thursday and Sunday. And even though you aren't traveling, uh, you aren't traveling at all, you don't have to go out of your city this week, uh, there's still the recovery time. So if I were them, I would be very tempted to just can it in this competition, play kids, hope for the best, and hope they can... They, they they would if it wasn't Liverpool. They would play anyone else. Yeah. Even if it was Dortmund or they had drawn Spurs, uh, they would uh, Porto, a, a big club like that. They they would they would can it. I think with Manchester City uh-huh. around the corner. But it's Liverpool. Uh, we know how uh, each set of supporters feels about one another. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that's really uh, drives this this. Uh, uh, the animus between these clubs is uh, there are, are teams that don't like each other and supporters that don't like each other. But the the animus between Manchester United and Liverpool supporters is is off the charts, right? And there's so many of them, both, so many of both sets of supporters that um, I don't think you can live with play, fielding an understrength side against uh, against Liverpool and get away with it. But then again, it might give Von Hall an excuse, right? Maybe. Um, and you know who knows who knows how Van Hall sees these things. He's not somebody that grew up in English football culture. It's not that you need to grow up in it to realize the stakes here. But he doesn't have a lot personally invested in this rivalry, and he might feel like he and, he, and he's not a Klopp, right? So yeah. Klopp is a guy that goes to clubs where there are big followings, and there's a robust supporters culture and a history, and the club has been underachieving in recent years. Okay, he played for Mines. That's his club. Uh, he went to Dortmund because it was a big club. It has the second biggest or third biggest fan base in Germany, depending on which metric you use. Uh, Bayern is first, and either Schalke or Dortmund is second. Uh, generally, Dortmund is seen as second. So he went, and they had been underachieving. They had had financial problems. He went there for that reason, and he stayed there seven years, and he brought them back to glory. There were two league titles, Copa, uh, German Cup title, uh, Champions League runner-up. Uh, so all, all this great stuff. And... He is doing the same thing with Liverpool. He connects himself to those sorts of clubs, which is why I, I said to someone last week, I said, um, this was in Orlando uh, after the Orlando City game, you know, Liverpool have to make their move and sack Rodgers because they probably were scared Benitez was getting sacked and uh, uh, Mourinho was getting sacked and Klopp could either have Real Madrid or Chelsea mm. instead of Liverpool. And this person told me, 
keen observer of, of European football told me, yeah, think about Klopp and Dortmund. Think about the kind of clubs. Think about the kind of guy he is. Liverpool is the fit. It's the perfect fit. Uh, Liverpool's a better fit for him than Chelsea or Real Madrid. And he's probably right. So he, he's steeped in this. So Klopp knows what it means to play Manchester United on a European night at Old Trafford. Yeah, you know, he's going to go for this. Whereas Van Hall, as you said, I think that's a very good analogy, very good uh, comparison. Richard. Maybe mm-hmm. he, I mean, he doesn't care. He's not steeped in the history of English football or in the history of the club he's gone to. Um, and Klopp's not steeped in the history of English football either, but he's steeped himself in the culture of Liverpool and the culture of Liverpool supporters. So Van Hall and Klopp might be viewing this thing completely different. For Van Hall, uh, last week we saw his press conferences. We saw what he was saying. This is this is Manchester United. This is Europe. This is the, this is a huge deal. Remember, he was making very um, very aggressive statements about the tie. Von Halsey just treated it like it was another game. Yeah. So that that's probably that's also a man who might be managing at his club for the next five to seven years, and a guy who's going to be gone in, in May. So that's also some of that. Not to sugarcoat it, Van Hall is just a lot more arrogant than Jurgen Klopp is. Jurgen Klopp, uh, a lot of the excitement that we see from him, his connection to the fans and to tradition and to uh, places that have that kind of charisma around it, is born in a humility and an empathy that we don't see in Van Hall. And I would say for most of Van Hall's career, that's been a good thing for him because that arrogance has led to a detachment that's allowed him to take a very uh, strident and academic approach to the game that has benefited most of his teams. I just don't know if it benefits him on Thursday. Or it could benefit him by th- on Thursday by transcending all of that and sending out a second-choice team and realizing that Manchester United's best chance to salvage the season is to get a win at the Etihad on Sunday. Let's stay with Thursday for a little bit. I don't know that there's much to talk about in this one. Kartik Spurs are hosting BVB down 3-0. They have the inferior side. We saw how far behind Dortmund were last week. Dortmund were just on another level. and Dortmund's showing themselves to be one of the two or three maybe best teams in Europe right now. Spurs, obviously a good team, but they were just so far out of their depth last week. I just I cannot imagine them turning this around. No, and and obviously um, Pochettino's squad rotation came in for some criticism because people said, hey, you're playing Aston Villa at the weekend. Uh, But Pochettino's response is, (laughs) we we haven't won a league title in 55 years. Yeah, We're there. He wasn't going to take that chance, even though it was Villa. And I pointed out to some people that both Leicester and and Manchester City have dropped points at Villa. I mean, in fact, uh, obviously Mara's missed the penalty, which is why they mm-hmm. drew Villa. But that that's an important result because if they had it, they'd be seven points clear. Uh, Leicester would be top of the table. The fact that um, that Spurs even have a shot to catch Leicester at this point, at this late stage of the season, top of the table is because of um, the um, is because of the the situation, right? With uh, with them dropping points against Villa and then also dropping points at home against Bournemouth, Leicester, those two those two bad results uh, that came in pretty quick succession when Mara's missed penalties in both. So Pochettino's philosophy was to rotate. Um, then they fell behind. They were getting opened up, so we brought on the horses. He brought Harry Kane on. He brought Lamella on. Uh, but that wasn't... Uh, I mean, maybe he shouldn't have played them at all because... Yeah. He, that that's now where that's the one thing I can question him for. He he also knows his his team very well. You and I have talked about this before. He knows fitness. He's probably the manager that at least we hear about is most attuned to to fitness concerns and, and recovery time and these sorts of things. So he was probably very keen on on uh, on just 
he probably look. They went for it against Fiorentina, and I thought maybe it was the best thing for Spurs was to get out at that stage. Now, as it turns out, that that result, those two results Spurs got against Fiorentina could be the most important results of the season for English football because it it was direct head to head with Italy, and it hmm. looks like England might hang on yeah, to they, that fourth spot. Because they of they that. almost certainly will now that Juventus is out of Champions League. Right. Yeah. Um, so we can put off this discussion for six more months until next year right. picks up and it becomes but, but, but big. If, if, Spurs have been eliminated by Fiorentina. There, we would be the discussion would be very much open because that yeah. was the head-to-head series that that kind of gave England the bump up. So, because of that, um, I thought, okay, he's going for it in this tournament. And what we found is, I think if they had drawn anyone else, including Manchester United or Liverpool, oh yeah, definitely, they they would have they would have gone for it in that first leg. But when he saw BVB, they're in the title race. Uh, and, and also, let's just let's not forget that uh, even though they, they have to dare to dream to finish in the title race, there's also another thing I think Pochettino is playing at. Let's not kid ourselves. He wants to finish ahead of Arsenal. So if they finish second and Arsenal finishes third, it's euphoria. If they finish third, or they're not going to finish lower than second. But uh, I don't believe. But they could finish third and Arsenal could finish second, right? So he wants to ensure that. And that alone is... Uh, uh, kind of a trophy for our Spurs supporters. <laughs> Banger has his trophy. Pochettino's going to have a trophy here soon. Yeah, right, right. So I think that that's, that's weighing on his mind also. And yeah. that, uh, for certain, has created this situation where the Europa League is a uh, is a difficult thing. And I, and I also have to say that there's been a, a consistent narrative. Spurs have been in this competition now uh, six successive seasons, or five su- successive seasons. There's one year... They should have qualified for Champions League, but they didn't, obviously, because of Chelsea winning, uh, improbably winning the, uh, the the whole thing that year in 2012 and being a sixth-place team and bumping uh, Spurs, who had finished fourth in the league, uh, out of the competition. Spurs fans have come to really loathe this competition. I'm going to tell you that straight out from talking to a lot of them. They blame, and then maybe it's convenient blame game in their mind, they blame the fact that they're finishing fifth every season. Arsenal is generally finishing fourth. And the team they're chasing is Arsenal, the team they hate the most. They blame a lot of it on being in this competition. Yeah, I've heard this in, argument too. Yeah, and that they really don't like the Europa League. And they feel like, you know what, we're going to be in Champions League next year. Screw this. Um, and let's finish ahead of Arsenal. Yeah. I think a lot of that weighs on Pochettino also. So um, they're not going to take this game seriously. I don't think, and... Um... Yeah, I don't think they should, the way they're down three goals. And I think the other thing that needs to be said is, very few people thought, even if we thought Spurs were going to rotate, because in the day before, we were talking about all the depth that Spurs have. Very few people thought that the separation between these two teams was that big. And I think, if anything, it was a reminder that Germany is improving a lot, especially at the top of the league. Um, I, I don't know if they're improving a lot, but the quality at the top of the league there certainly outstretches the top, the quality at the top of England right now. And when you have the second-place team in England going up against the second-place team in Germany, it was just really telling the quality difference between the two leagues. We have a lot of weird data points on this this season because Wolfsburg, is a, is a we've already talked about, is a team that may not qualify for Europe next season, and they <laughs> looked apart in two legs against Manchester United and yeah. lost one of them. Uh, the other one was Gladbach, who is a good team, and I think is probably going to be back in Champions League next season uh, against Manchester City, losing both legs. So that's... Uh, um, it, we have random data points between these yeah. leagues. Uh, Bayern against Arsenal. Arsenal beating them one leg. Uh, one of those two ties. 
this may have been the definitive book on, okay, Germany is a better league than England. I think it is slightly better, by the way. And I think I've said this on the show before, but this might have been the, the book closer on that discussion. Yeah, I think that we both agree on that. I just, you know, you and I exchanged messages during the game. It's just, it was just shocking to me to see the actual gap. Um, to think that the second place team in England couldn't compete with BVB uh, at all. It was just shocking to me. So, you know, learning experience, uh, move on. I think Spurs should probably move on and uh, not take tomorrow or not put their best foot forward tomorrow. Yeah, Poch- Pochettino wasn't hired for his... Uh... His ability to try and deliver the Europa League title uh, to White Hart Lady was delivered to try and uh, push push the project along, stop them from being in this yeah. perennial holding pattern where they're finishing fifth in the league every year and they're overspending on players. Well, He's de- fixed yeah. both those things. They they're are definitely be, finishing. They're definitely in Champions League next year. You and I right, thought- they're definitely in Champions League and they're gonna and and uh, they're not spending like they used to. Right? He's 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 promoting from within. He's teaching the game to to the players they have in their system. So. Um, I, I think that this was this, this was just a bonus for them anyway. Uh, kind of tangentially, I saw somebody on Twitter posted a screenshot of odds for I believe Skybet. I, I shouldn't say the name because effectively advertising, but it was some company and odds for the 2016-17 Premier League season, and they had Spurs as fifth favorites behind Manchester City, who were the clear favorites. I guess that's the Guardiola factor, right? Um, Without are, knowing who any of their players will be, right? Arsenal, United, <laughs> they had a head of Spurs, and I can't even remember who the other Probably team Liverpool. was. Probably Liverpool. It, it might have been Chelsea, too. I don't know. Uh, I thought that was remarkable. That's madness. That's, I mean... I think Spurs probably enter next season as the favorite, although the Guardiola effect at Manchester City and really the Klopp effect at Liverpool might, yeah. um, might, might, might change that. But uh, right now we know, look, there's, there's all this talk out there, oh, Real Madrid can get Pochettino, Manchester United will get, could get Pochettino. No. He might have a better team. At, okay, he doesn't have Cristiano Ronaldo or Gareth Bale or uh, Benzema at, um, or Marcelo, you know, some really elite players at, at, at Spurs. But he, might have, he probably has a better team. And then uh, at, when you compare him to Manchester United, he, he has a better team and better players. So I don't know why you would be tempted at this point in time for either job, unless he thinks it's his only opportunity to go to one of those places. People are assuming the Real Madrid job is even going to be open? Uh, people are beginning to assume that, but oh. I think you're right. They've, they've had this plan for Zidane for a while. They've moved up the timeline because they sacked Rafa midway through the season instead of sacking him uh, after one year, and um, that yeah. might work out nicely for Newcastle. I, I don't... Uh, per- Perez has a lot invested in Zidane. He's not going to let go of him that quickly. Yeah. Um, now, I, I mean, we'll talk about this in the next in, 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 later in the show, but uh, obviously this has worked out wonderfully for Newcastle, who would have been relegated for sure if uh, Benitez hadn't been available. So sacking him in, in January at Real Madrid has, has put a manager who wants to be in England, uh, prefers English football to the other leagues he's managed in recently, uh, on the market. And Newcastle... Uh, credit to them, they've they've made the move. That's really disrespectful for, to Spurs. I think that people are going so far out of their way to assume that Pochettino will leave them so easily. The Real Madrid link, it's yeah, that, that's yeah. very thin. But the Manchester United thing too. There are very few situations where uh, coaches bow out of Champions League. Manchester United's probably not going to make Champions League next year. If they do, maybe then. And obviously, Manchester United has a lot of prestige there, but. We've talked about this before. It, does, it doesn't really make sense. The to me. only example I even remember of players signing for a club, going from clubs in Champions League to sign for clubs that were, club was that was not in Champions League, unless it was an enormous amount of money, which which is what uh, 
uh, Manchester City tried to do in 2010. And actually, they were taking guys from places. Yaya Torre was 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 essentially uh, on the on sale from Barcelona, and the mm-hmm. other guys they were getting from places like Villa and Valencia and the Sevilla, the second tier clubs, uh, was when Bayern was out of Champions League for a year, and they were able to go out and get Frank Ribery. Uh, a player that would have been in Champions League that season, and they, and they went on and got Luca Toni, a player who would have been in Champions League that season. So uh, that's the only example I even remember of players. Coaches, it's even rarer. I mean, guys yeah. that leave teams that are in Champions League, particularly it, in the Premier League. I mean, maybe they do if they're managing uh, a team in... Uh, well, like, in, Mar- like Mourinho. Well, Mar- yeah, Mourinho... Well, no. Even then, that doesn't really. They weren't Champions League. No, yeah. I mean, unless they're managing a team in one of the uh, in some second tier right. league. If a guy's managing PSV or Ajax, and then has the opportunity to take the Southampton job, maybe he thinks about it. But the um, the idea of a, of a guy leaving Spurs, who would be uh, first or second in the Premier League in all likelihood, for a team that's going to finish fifth or sixth, and is not going to be in Champions League, and has a massive rebuild in front of them, and uh, whose uh, board hasn't exhibited the sort of patience in recent time to where Pochettino can do what he did at Southampton and play a lot of young players and do what he's done at Spurs and play a lot of young players. And keep in mind, Spurs had gone through a cycle just like Manchester United's going through, where they're buying players every summer, they're going through big spending managers, they bring in a new manager who wants to spend on different players, they brought in the director of football who wanted, who had disagreements with the manager, that was AVB and Baldini, and then uh, they brought in Sherwood. And so they had run the gamut of the sort of thing that Manchester United is going through now. They brought in Pochettino to solve that, and he solved it. So why would he put himself right back into the same situation he inherited at Spurs uh, mm-hmm. with uh, probably less patience from from fans and owners? I, I don't think they. I don't think uh, he will. I there, think it's a non-starter. He's not. Leaving. Yeah, there are so many parallels here to the Di- the situation Diego Simeone. Um, not, not only the players' nationalities, the coaches' nationalities, and the fact they were former players, but also the fact that they are now they have squads and they have teams that are competing for titles in their leagues that people still don't regard as perennial contenders, and so they assume that these these coaches are going to want to move to what they think are perennial contenders. But really, when you look at it, there's probably only like four or five jobs in the world that these guys would move to. Right, and I, that's the thing about the Pochettino thing, link that really irks me is the Madrid one. Madrid is fi- fires managers after six months. After a year, they fired Ancelotti. They, they fire – it doesn't matter the reputation of a manager. They, fi- they sack him. Why would Pochettino leave Spurs where I think he could probably manage at this point – for a very, very long time. I know yeah. time is not what it used to be. You're not going to have Ferguson's and Wenger's in this in this era. But you could have a guy that manages for um, you know as long as Klopp managed the BBB. Yeah, right? you could you could have that in Pochettino at, at Spurs. So I don't uh, I, I don't uh, think that he would give up what is probably a, a seven year job for a one year job. And I think the other thing too is both of these managers seem to be committed to seeing their teams into their new stadiums too. So that's a very good point. They, yes. They've already made this commitment to the club that would require them to break promises that exist where other broken promises don't exist in other places. So I, I think it's just all people just like talking about this stuff, but they haven't thought it out. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was me kind of going, I'm tired of talking about this thing that's never going to happen. Let's talk about something. Let's get back to the Premier League. Uh, something that we do regularly on the midweek show is talk about our relegation picks, the relegation threes. Uh, Kartik, you've just recently been doing midweek shows because of your commitments on the weekends, so you haven't been able to do this very much. I'm interested in knowing who you think are going to be in the bottom three come the end of the season. Okay, so Norwich 
and Villa for sure. I'm not sure either team is going to get to – well, Villa won't get to 30 points. I'm not sure Norwich is going to get to 30 points. Poor Alex Neal. They, um, I think they play their, they play as well as they can. They just they just don't have the horses. Uh, they've overpaid for um, for Closa and for uh, Naismith, but I, I think they were desperate in January and felt like they needed uh, needed players. So um, they're going down now. I, I until Friday, I was sure that Sunderland were staying up. Um, I, I'm still going to have to say Sunderland stay up. Uh, but Newcastle are going to run them close because it's um, – look, I mean, we could say – you could say Rafa Benitez, uh, you know, he failed at Inter. He failed at, uh, at uh, Real Madrid. He, fa- he failed at these big clubs. Uh, but the, the reality of the situation is this is Newcastle. The, th- the bar is very low. I don't know why he took the job. But now that he's taken it, I, mean, I don't know why a, a manager of his stature would, would subject himself to Mike Ashley's uh, <laughs> ownership. But now that he's done it, I mean, obviously, none of these players are his players. But Benitez is a, is a manager who gets results. And if, and if he only has to get so many results, if he doesn't have to win every game like he did at, at uh, those two places I mentioned. And, and for Chelsea fans, he had to win every game at Chelsea. Although I would point out, um, at least in the league and the cup competitions, uh, Chelsea improved in the period he was, uh, he was there. Uh, Di Matteo had, of course, won the FA Cup the previous year, and he got them... Uh, Benitez got them to the semifinals, but and had won the Champions League miraculously. But their league form was terrible throughout Di Matteo's tenure. Uh, Benitez stabilized them, got them to third. They almost caught Manchester City for second that year, by the way. And he also got them uh, pretty far in the. Oh, they won the Europa League, right? So uh, because they had fallen to the Europa League mm-hmm. already, he had inherited a team that that had fallen out in the Champions League group stages. So uh, he could get instant results if he doesn't have to win every game. He didn't have to win every game at Chelsea in reality, but the, the fans didn't like him because he you know, he had fought with Jose Mourinho and he's a Liverpool guy, so they didn't like any of that. He's not going to have to win every game at Newcastle. He has to win, let's see, they, they, they've got 24 points. He's probably going to have to win three games for sure uh, and get a couple, a couple draws, or maybe he has to win four games. He could probably do that. The question is, now that Allardyce... Um, and, and these two teams are playing, so this is pretty. I guess this is going to segue us into the weekend. Uh, our early kickoff on Sunday is the uh, the uh, Tyneware Derby. They uh, and Sunderland has beaten Newcastle six successive times, Richard, as you know. And and most of those games were very important in, in the relegation fight. And Sunderland is still in the division because they keep beating Newcastle. They keep beating their local rival from eight miles away. So they um, um, they will have a lot of confidence and expect to win this game. But if Benitez can win this game and then push on and win a few more, uh, I think they might stay up. So um, it's possible someone else gets sucked in. Does Crystal Palace get sucked in, sitting on 33 points, not having won a game in the league since mid-December, now in the FA Cup semifinals, having to no- uh, negotiate a, a uh, FA Cup semifinal at Wembley against Watford. Uh, Watford is, I think, the closest club, actually the closest big club at least to uh, or professional club to Wembley stadium. Not that it matters because Crystal Palace is very close too. but um, it, it, does that suck them into this? Uh, is Swansea somehow get sucked into it? We now have to start thinking that way because of um, this, uh, this appointment of Rafa Benitez, this kind of miracle appointment by Newcastle. I'm going to say this week, Newcastle still go down, but they run it close. Um, and as far as this week's game, maybe they get a draw. And that, that really uh, 
uh, livens things up in this relegation fight. I mean, uh, Richard, what do you think about the Benitez appointment? I know uh, you discussed it a little bit over the weekend, but it, it's uh, it's still to me kind of surreal that Newcastle got this manager when I thought nobody would want that job. Absolutely nobody. Yeah, to me, I don't understand Rafa's motivation. He must be extremely confident that he can keep them up. And if he does keep them up, I think it's a great situation. But, you know, kind of like we talked about last week, I just don't see why he didn't just wait and, yeah. and see where the chips landed. Because if his number one goal was to come back to a job in England, and I think that was probably his number one goal. I don't think he has any special affinity for Newcastle. Then he could have waited till the end of the year and when teams started making decisions about their managers, and or he could have waited until the beginning of the next year. I mean, Like we said last week, like a Swansea, one of those jobs would be open sooner or later. Swan, yeah. Swansea is open. Swansea is open. open. Crystal Palace looks like it very well could could open up. Watford had Watford has changed managers under weirder situations. Uh, Maybe Everton moves on from from Martinez. I don't know. Um, Yeah, and he could live at home if he manages Everton. Uh, I uh, I do have to say though, Newcastle fans who have been very anti Newcastle United. Very anti Mike Ashley over the moon about this appointment. They can't yeah, they believe they be. got Benitez, and they should be. They should I mean, be. it's I just don't know what Rafa was thinking, and I, I articulated that in an article on World Soccer Talk, and have continued to say that to people privately, and and everybody else has the same reaction. They're, they've said, "Well, that's great for Newcastle. What an appointment! But why would he do it?" I like I like to think that Rafa Benitez, after leaving Real Madrid and what happened to him there, has reached some kind of personal zen where he's super comfortable with himself now and he's so comfortable that if he went down to the championship for a year he would find joy in that for some reason or if he's if he kept Newcastle up he'd find joy in it too he just wants to get back to what he looks loves doing best and when that's managing a soccer team so that's what I want to think I don't really have any reason to believe that I think it's possible um I think it's possible based on what happened with him at Real Madrid and him even accepting this job at all uh, but I, I don't know. It's still a, kind of a mystery to me. Um, I think Norwich and Norwich and Aston Villa are the easy picks here too, Kartik. I think it does come down to Sunderland versus Newcastle. There's a nine-point gap right now between Sunderland and Swansea, and for most of these teams, there are either nine or eight matches left. So Newcastle and Sunderland picking up one point per round from here until the end of the season, that's just not something I could predict. Uh, I'm going to predict Sunderland goes down. Because Allardyce has had a few months now to show us that he can come up with a winning plan and he hasn't done it. I will say that I'm not going to be surprised if either Swansea or more readily Crystal Palace end up going down. Just right now, the math doesn't line up enough for me. If, if Newcastle ends up winning this weekend and then Palace loses at home to Leicester, that'll quote, close the gap between those two teams to six points. But and we, then I might yeah. be convinced. And, and, we, and we, had talk, we had talked about that, uh, this in the... Uh, in the last uh, in the last few months, that there were elements that teams could start pulling away, and these teams at the bottom could get cut adrift. I, I said it openly uh, several times, I think, on this show that Bournemouth just needs to get to 22, 24 points when they get Max Gradle back. Uh, they'll start flying. Yeah, since Gradle's got to come back, they've won three games in a row. Yeah. They, they are totally out of the relegation conversation now. I mean, they could they could lose out and still stay up. I think I think they're safe already, probably. <laughs> Um, uh, they're they're, they're actually they're closer. They're they're actually closer to uh, they're they're as close to Manchester City as they are relegation. Bournemouth right now. Yeah. So there there you go. And so we were right about that. I, I felt all along Swansea. If they started to pick up a couple of results, they might they might pull away. And uh, we've also seen uh, the West Brom get results. Now that I yeah. wasn't expecting, but they did. So the three teams that we thought might get sucked into this have pulled away, and their four teams cut adrift. Yeah. Um, 
That, well, that's Palace a good way. To, wasn't really in our equation. That's a good that's way to put happened. it, though, Kartik. We we talked before about how you know every year we see teams make runs at the end of the season. Maybe the teams made their runs; they just didn't come at the end of the season. Maybe Swansea, Bournemouth, and West Brom were right. part of this relegation picture. They did make their runs, and now relegation really is just down to four teams. The teams and, that and have, we and we had said, uh, I think several times, I, I had said it, and, and you had echoed it that uh, Bournemouth, all they needed to do was stay, uh, not get cut adrift completely and not be where Villa was to where when Gradle came back because he is such an influential player and a player that uh, apparently Jose Mourinho said hey I I would have signed him at Chelsea he signed with Bournemouth because of Eddie Howe he didn't sign with Bournemouth for any other reason um for specifically for the manager when he came back okay then they'll go on a run well they did uh what Mm -hmm. we didn't expect as you said is uh, these other two runs Swansea and, and West Brom including Swansea going to the Emirates and winning, which, uh, you know, again, if you catch Oof. Arsenal at the right time, Jeez, uh, that looks big now. Season. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, we're in this position where you're right. Maybe these runs came in uh, March, in uh, February and March, instead of coming in, in April and May, as mm-hmm. usual. And we had the same great escapes. They just were timed a little differently. So we don't think of them as great escapes. Hmm. Premier League action this weekend, officially the 31st round in the Premier League. Ten, ten matches, seven really good games. We're going to blow through eight of them here really quick. I'm just going to ask Kartik give us a couple sentences on each one. Uh, counting, kind of counting down from ten to one here. We'll spend some extra time on the top two. Uh, number ten, Swansea versus Aston Villa. 10.30 Eastern time start on Saturday. Uh, Kartik, there really isn't much at stake here. We both see Swansea state as safe. We both see Aston Villa as destined for the championship. Correct. Uh, number nine on the list, Watford versus Stoke. Again, not very much at stake here, even though these two teams are much better than the two we were just talking about. But both of these teams are lodged in the middle of the table. Stoke still has some European dreams here. But the matchup between these two sides, I'm not sure we're going to see a very exciting game on Saturday. Yeah, Watford now is going to the um, going to the FA Cup semifinal. That, a lot of focus will be on that. Now, obviously, that's a month away, but they, um, they're going to feel accomplished and uh, who knows how, how how they'll react to getting back to the league? Uh, obviously, uh, they're coming off a win against Arsenal at the Emirates, <laughs> like like some other, like other teams we've yeah. talked about. Number eight on the list: West Brom versus Norwich. West Brom has cleared the relegation battle. Norwich, however, every game is important, so this game does have relegation implications. Yeah, I just don't see how Norwich is going to get results. They're not able to score goals. The one game they were able to score goals in was that Liverpool game where they gave up five. So. They, um, they're they're fundamentally sound. The team. That's the thing that's frustrating. When you watch Norwich, you really feel like you know what Newcastle and Sunderland have all this money to spend. They have all these fans. They've underachieved for so long. Both of them should go down. That's really the way, personally, as a neutral, I feel. Mm-hmm. And Norwich should stay up, but it, Norwich is not going to stay up, and they just don't have the horses. Number seven on the list is actually a fight for seventh place in the league. Although, interestingly, seventh place in the league doesn't look like it's going to be a European spot. If Manchester United or West Ham end up winning the FA Cup, it very well could be. But the rest of the survivors in the FA Cup, those in contention to win a Europa League berth with that trophy, are falling into the bottom half of the league, which means Southampton versus Liverpool at St. Mary's on Sunday at 9.30 Eastern time is going to be a battle to see who can try to move up the table to try to catch sixth place Manchester United. Very good game here, Kartik. I, I don't know which way to go. Go with Liverpool's continued improvement or go with Southampton's defense? I, I think maybe go with... Uh, oof, boy, this is this is actually a pretty good matchup. I, I think uh, Liverpool is going so well, but Southampton's defense 
is still solid, very, very strong. They've now gotten a, a win for the first time in weeks. Mane's suspension has been lifted by the FA, so uh, that that uh, odd red card he got at the end of the match, I don't know what he was seeing last week. Uh, so I think he'll be, uh, I think I'll go further. Mm-hmm. Number six on the list, Crystal Palace versus Leicester. Pretty much any game that affects this title race is going to be highly regarded. Crystal Palace's story continues to evolve too. Very bad in league, still good in cups. Uh, this could be a difficult one for Leicester depending on which Palace team shows up. Yeah, I I, I think these games are getting trickier and trickier for, for Leicester. But this is this is a game where they might be in a situation where um, 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 Palace feels like they need to go for it. And Pardew, a more attacking-minded manager, so they'll have uh, they'll have less of the ball, uh, Leicester, and we know they like playing with less of the. Ball. Uh, we also know Claudio Ranieri got very animated with the team, according to Okazaki, at halftime of the Newcastle game. So he can, he's pushing buttons now. He, he's got this very aw shucks kind of uh, uh, happy demeanor uh, um, in in uh, internally. Uh, I mean, externally when he goes in front of the media, but he's in this position now where he's cracking the whip to the team uh, behind closed doors. So maybe he'll have to do something to get a reaction here because Palace are going to need to go for it and get the three points. And Pardew is going to want to win a game. Uh, I think that this very well could be a draw or Palace could end up uh, 3-0. So uh, one of two things are going to play out, I think. Uh, I don't think Leicester is, I guess, the point. Number five on the list, Tottenham, looking to keep up with Leicester. They're also facing a team that's in the bottom half of the table, but like Crystal Palace, seemingly safe. The difference between Crystal Palace and Bournemouth, though, is that Bournemouth has picked up 10 points in their last four games, bringing a much more difficult challenge to White Hart Lane on Sunday. If he if rotates the way we think he will on on Thursday against BVB, then Spurs are going to have a fresh squad for this game. And I think it's very, very, very possible they will end up winning it uh, for that reason. Uh, they need the three points. They're, they need three points in every game from here on out. Uh, we think they need three points in every game from here on out. They may not, but the way they're thinking now, they can't fall any further behind Leicester or not take advantage of opportunities if they arise, if Leicester drops points. So uh, I, I think Spurs will probably win. Number four on the list, another Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time kickoff. Uh, Darby, Chelsea is hosting West Ham United, a West Ham team that is looking to continue their ascent towards Champions League contention against a Chelsea team who, for all their struggles recently, uh, relative struggles, they still haven't lost in league under Heating since Heating's return. Safe call here is a draw, right? Who knows? I, I don't know which Chelsea team's going to show up. I think that West Ham's been playing much better than Chelsea lately, but there's a reason why Chelsea hasn't been losing, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they get draws, uh, Chelsea, constantly, and West Ham has a lot of draws this season also, so I think this is a draw, although West Ham wins has been winning games away from home, right? A lot of games. Yes. Yep, they've beaten pretty much all the top teams away from home, uh, most of the top teams. Number three on our list would be number one on our list most weeks. It's the match that kicks off the weekend at 8.45 a.m. Eastern Time at Goodison. Everton, recently confirming a berth in the FA Cup semifinals. They're hosting Arsenal. Everton's down to a one-competition team this year. Kartik, they're definitely going to be focusing on getting Roberto Martinez his second FA Cup victory. Arsenal at at this point, these are must-win games if they have title aspirations. But even beyond that, with Manchester City, West Ham on their heels, with Manchester United maybe crawling their way back into contention for fourth this weekend in their derby, uh, they have to be looking behind them as much as they are looking in front of them. Yeah, I know that they've been terrible uh, of late, uh, at, especially at home and in, in holding leads, Everton. But 
I, I just can't see Arsenal going to Goodison and winning, considering the form there. And it would be, uh, it, it would suspend a certain degree of reality. Everton's got to be playing with confidence after having gone, uh, having gotten that result they got last week in in the FA Cup. They're in the semifinals, as you know. I, I think uh, I, I'll be generous and say they get a draw here. <laughs> although I, 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 although I'm not very confident in that pick, I think there's a very strong chance Everton. But even then, even if they draw at Goodison, which is a perfectly reasonable result, uh, Tottenham's hosting Bournemouth and Leicester is at Crystal Palace. They're gonna they're gonna lose points to somebody if they don't get a win at Goodison. Let's slow down a little bit, Kartik, and let's spend some extra time breaking out the, breaking down the two biggest matches of the weekend, two of the more prominent local derbies in England. Let's go to the northeast first to St. James's Park, where Rafa Benitez will be playing the role that normally a Sunderland manager plays. Four of the last six derbies has seen the Black Cats change managers two weeks before the game and then go on to beat Newcastle in the derby. This time it's Newcastle changing the man on the sidelines. Rafa Benitez coming in. His first derby sees Sunderland coming to St. James's Park at 9.30 on Sunday. I, I really like Rafa Benitez's chances here. I know that Monday's game against Leicester was, was pretty... um chance-free. Let's go ahead and say that without putting a value judgment on it. I'm neither team creating that much. I was reasonably impressed that Newcastle was able to compete with Leicester given that Rafa Benitez had only been in the club for three days. With an extra seven days or six days to prepare for this one, given how Sunderland's been playing, and given that Sam Allardyce isn't going to exactly know what to prepare for, although it's highly likely Newcastle's going to play some version of a 4-2-3-1 formation, I really like the Magpies in this one, Kartik. Yeah, I think that they... uh they, they're owed a win in, in this derby. Uh, they're going to have the new manager bounce. Rafa is going to have gotten to see this team now in training and made some determinations. They didn't look that bad against Leicester. Like I said, Ranieri reamed re- out the team. Also, Sunderland has gotten fortunate in this derby in recent memory. They've had uh, situations where guys have been sent off for Newcastle or they've gotten that new manager bounce. DeCanio came right in and, and slaughtered a, a Newcastle team that was in full uh, pardu effect that year. Uh, the same thing kind of happened with Poyet. And then uh, Allardyce, uh, Advocat, I, I can't remember if Advocat beat Newcastle. He probably did. Yeah, he because, did. Yeah, he did. Uh, that, that was just Newcastle. You remember how bad Newcastle was the second half of last season. They caught Newcastle at the right time. I think this is a circumstance where they're catching them at the wrong time. So there's probably a little bit of a, a, of a flip. And, and they're actually playing the Sunderland script right now, Newcastle, as you said in your lead-in. So I think Newcastle's going to win this one. I can't believe I'm saying that. Because yeah. this derby has become... Uh, the most one-sided, big uh, derby in English football over the last few seasons uh, between clubs that uh, are, are nearby geographically and have uh, this kind of animus towards one another. The only other one that's been really uh, almost as one-sided has been Chelsea Arsenal. But um, I think that ends on Sunday. Mm. The other thing, uh, it's really terrible that I don't even like talking about this, but it is something that affects this. Newcastle over the last three years has had a lot of trouble dealing with Adam Johnson. I think Adam Johnson has scored three goals in these six derbies. Yeah. Very yeah. important goals. Uh, thankfully, Adam Johnson is not playing in this derby anymore. He's not going to play football in England anymore. That being said, Sunderland doesn't have the same kind of threat uh, that Adam Johnson posed Newcastle. I don't know why Adam Johnson troubled Newcastle so much, but he did. Without him, that's a significant part of the reason why the Black Hats have been successful over these last six derbies. That's a very, very good point. And uh, they... Um... They knew this was coming, and they didn't really buy a natural replacement. Uh, maybe Allardyce didn't. Right? We know the uh, uh, the CEO, she knew it was coming, the, the head of the club, the president of the club, and she's been forced to resign, Margaret Byrne. Uh, we knew she, she knew it was coming, but um, 
they, this is an eventuality they were going to have to deal with. I mean, they should have had to deal with it a year ago. In fact, I think not to discuss because it's so distasteful, but uh, I think Payette had suspended him, and Advocat came in and said, "Oh, I need this guy basically uh, to get to get out and, and escape relegation," which they did. And he scored. He played against Liverpool and excuse me, against Newcastle and played very well. I, I, I think maybe they had already made the decision to discard him when he was originally charged uh, and uh, Payette was a manager, but then the manager got sacked and new manager came to stay, keep this team up. I'm going to need to use this guy. Yeah. I think that's what happened. I don't know if that's what happened, but the timing works out on that because he came back after Advocat came in. Came in. So yeah. maybe maybe that was the thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, me- I remember it being not as controversial as I would have liked it once Dick Advocat brought him back in. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, well, maybe I just don't know enough details about the case to say for sure here. Uh, as is, I guess I should have, I wish I would have been a little bit louder, a little bit more questioning of people who know more about the story and maybe gotten some more knowledge on that. I think it is telling that both you and I think that Newcastle is going to win here, uh, or at least they're the favorites here. If they do win, they will almost surely be out of the bottom three by the end of the weekend. Uh, and maybe, like we were talking about, depending on results with Swansea and Crystal Palace, can start to pull one of those teams back to the bottom three. Um It'll be a big blow to Sunderland, though, if they lose psychologically. They're going to have to recover from it. Let's go to the other big derby of the weekend. Manchester City is hosting Manchester United. This is one of the last kickoffs of the weekend. It's Sunday, noon Eastern time. Manchester United goes into this game sixth place in the league with 47 points. That's four points behind Manchester United, who are on 51 points in fourth place. Both teams have played 29 rounds here. Uh, Kartik... I think we have to start with the injury situation. Uh, Manchester City throughout the year has been such a different team. When Vincent Kompany is not there, he's obviously not going to be there this weekend. Uh, we Even if we assume that Nicolas Otamendi is going to be there, we can't start really judging this game until we can judge what Manchester City is going to be on Sunday. What kind of team do you think that Manuel Pellegrini is going to be able to put together for this one? Otamendi, I think, is probably going to play... Samir Nasri is close to fitness. Fabi and Delph, Pellegrini seems to think might be back. Hmm. Uh, I, yeah, that would be a big help. That that's uh, I think something he wants to do very badly. He, uh, a player like Delph uh, could be critical in this game uh, with Martial because uh, you, you're going to need a guy on the left side that can probably track him, and and, and you could then uh, whoever you're playing a cliche or Kolarov. It seems Kolarov is out of favor now. It'd be cliche that uh, he can, can team up with him. Uh, yeah, otherwise, you're stuck playing Sterling or Silva out there and not being able to track uh, Martial's movement. And then if they play Martial on the left, though, then you have a, another dilemma. But you could still, you could still fit uh, it the way you want if you do have the availability of, of Fabian Delph. So there's a possibility Delph might be back. There's a possibility, uh, a strong possibility that Otamendi might be back. There's even some rumors going around about Nasri being back for the game, which I, I find hard to believe. So uh, I haven't seen he, him resume training yet. Kevin De Bruyne is close to a return. I don't think it's going to be this week, though. I think it's going to probably be after the initial break. Uh, I'm assuming Belgium, since they're playing friendlies, are not going to call him in, and uh, they'll let him recover, and he'll be back after that break. But <laughs> who, who, knows, who knows with the relationship between Belgium and Manchester City? Well, that's true, and, and uh, it would be very interesting to see if company gets a call up this time. Yeah, that's true. And how that sets off. Pellegrini may not get as animated about this. He's on his way out. He's like, eh, anyway. don't, I don't care anymore. Who cares? Yeah, but... Uh, so that, that's that's an interesting aspect. The, the, uh, for the Manchester uh, United uh, standpoint, the potential of getting back Ashley Young, who has played well in this derby, 
I thought was uh, one of the better players last April when the two teams played in, in, at, uh, at Old Trafford and uh, has had some other decent games against Manchester City uh, would, be, uh, would be a big boon for them. So they might have Ashley Young back. Uh, Rashford is, is an option. Lingard's an option. Those are young players that can run it. A, a kind of an old, tired City team that has a lot of tread on the tires, a lot of games uh, uh, under their belt. And you've got um, a situation also for Manchester City where they're not scoring goals. So I, it's two teams that are misfiring. You give Manchester City a slight edge because they're at home and they might have some of these players returning. But I could see either result. I could see Manchester United winning this 2-1 to one, or I could see Manchester City getting a 1-0 victory. Uh, but I, don't, I can't see Manchester City getting the kind of you know, we've seen them get uh, four, four nil, four ones before six one, obviously years ago. But now five, five years ago, uh, uh, three nil, uh, where Edin Dzeko scored inside the first minute at Old Trafford a few seasons ago. I, I can't see that happening. I can't see Manchester scoring goals against better teams. And, and Manchester United, they're not a top four team, but they're still a top six team against better teams. Manchester City hasn't won a game all season, and they don't get goals against those teams. The West Ham's, the Leicester's, uh, the uh, the Arsenal's, the Spurs, they, they haven't gotten goals against teams. Uh, United in the first meeting, uh, Liverpool uh, over uh, two meetings outscored seven to one. So um, you know, on that on that evidence, actually, United would be your pick, but because it's at uh, uh, at the, the Etihad, I guess I've talked myself into a draw now. I had a speed <laughs> win, and as we're making these arguments, I'm realizing this will probably be a draw. United is so difficult to figure out. I mean, they have their two wins in the league over Liverpool. They've beaten Arsenal this year. We saw them recently draw West Ham. Um, these are some of the better – well, I shouldn't say that. I was about to say they're some of the better teams in England. But there's teams that are certainly talented and have performed well at times. Uh, they obviously had their opening game of the season uh, result against Tottenham too. Um but when we watch them, they just, they never look good. They never look impressive. They look like a team that can be solid at best and uh, obviously can control games with their possession. But against a team like Manchester City, where we're used to seeing the Agueros and the Torres of the world break open games between teams that are playing similarly. We're used to seeing Silva periodically, but he is capable of stepping up in these games. We're used to seeing players like Fernandinho or Zabaleta have big contributions when it's needed. I, I think Kartik, it really comes down to that because you, as you've talked about before, Manchester City for most of the season hasn't been playing consistently. And uh, a lot of that time, they just haven't really been playing that well, except for the first couple months of the season. But what's really distinguished their good performances from bad performances, or maybe not performances, maybe results, is when they can get two or three of those guys that we mentioned to step up. So I'm left asking myself, is Pellegrini and his staff and the leadership on this team going to be able to convince everybody that this is a big game, that this is a derby, that this is going to matter if the team is going to make Champions League next year, that just in terms of the team's pride alone, that they should go out there and do their best in this game. I'm convincing myself that that's more likely to happen than not. And that even if we can't break it down tactically to say, oh, this is why City will win, I can kind of break it down emotionally and personally and say that Aguero or Torre or Fernandinho or somebody is going to make something happen on Sunday. I think maybe we've seen a little bit of a reversal, Richard, in these last two derbies uh, under Von Hall where uh, United have played uh, better. But uh, the derby seemed to be always a game. Manchester City has had dips in form under Pellegrini before, and they would come out of them when they played Manchester United. Uh, it happened uh, in Pellegrini's first three games against Manchester United, all of which uh, 
were victories. Uh, they the city was wobbling right before the game, and uh, they would come out and they wouldn't just two of those games. They didn't, city didn't just come out and beat them; they slaughtered them. <laughs> and the third game, you could see City wanted more, and they and they end up winning that game one nil eventually. It, it, it's one of those things where, uh, uh, although I have to mention James Milner played a role in all, all three of those results, and now he's mm-hmm. at Liverpool. But um, uh, these guys, Torre and, and Jekko, I mentioned, scored a goal inside uh, about forty seconds a few years ago at Old Trafford. Uh, Aguero, Silva, they seem to always get up when they play Manchester United. See, this is the this is the thing. I mean. There's, there's a lot of talk that Manchester team are mercenaries. Um, Manchester City actually has a lower wage bill this season than Manchester United, believe it or not, um, which uh, I think is the first time in a, in, a, in a few years that's happened, actually, but um, in probably five or six seasons. But they do have a lower wage bill than Manchester United, and they have players who've been around the club long, believe it or not, because all these players, uh, and we've talked about this over and over again, that the core of Manchester City's team was bought, was either inherited, in the case of company is Avaleta and, and Hart, were bought very early after the takeover when Brian Marwood was the director of football, uh, the former Arsenal player who is now running City's Academy, and then uh, Roberto Mancini was uh, the manager. So that core of players have been through, you know, if you include other competitions where these teams have played, I have 14 derbies now, 12 or 14 derbies. They seem to know what's at stake. They seem to know what it means to the supporters. They, they get up for it. So even... Uh, you always hear English players are more up for these things than, than uh, foreign players. But I haven't seen that with Manchester City. I mean, I see Aguero's intensity level, uh, Silva's, Yaya Torres, uh, Kolarov's, uh, those four guys. Uh, that, uh, oh, Zavaleta, especially. We ran an article on another site I contributed to today about that. Uh, these guys get up for this derby. In Zavaleta's case, he's playing in about, uh, probably in about 20 derbies. So... Um, they get up for it, even though they're foreign players, because it's Manchester United. It's the Derby. They know what it means to the fans. Manchester United has some players uh, that, that just maybe it'll be different now with Rashford and, and, and Lingard and guys who come through their system. But they have players that, whether they're English or foreign or mercenaries, they don't really view Manchester City as, as, as some sort of great rival or, or they don't care or they're indifferent. Um and we've seen the intensity level be higher from Manchester City players against Manchester United. That that that's that is absolute. And I think that that's one of these things where if that happens in this game, you can throw the form book out, and Manchester City is going to win. And that doesn't mean they're going to continue to win after this. And it doesn't mean Manchester United is going to continue to lose. It's just something that's happened. I I, I think historically this has been the case. Uh, it wasn't the case in the 1990s, I should say. Manchester City went that whole decade without beating Manchester United once. But in the 2000s, from the point when Manchester City came back into the Premier League under Kevin Keegan in the two, in 2002, uh, 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 to the present day, Manchester City has played, has generally punched above their weight in this derby, and Manchester United has punched below their weight in this derby. Uh, maybe it's because Manchester City see, and their players buy into the culture they see United is the big rival, and United players see Liverpool as the big rival. I don't know if that's the reason, but um, it, that is certainly something that is true in this derby, unmistakably true. And you'll see it uh, in the intensity from the Zavaletas, and the company will be heartbroken. He's missing out on this. But Torre, if Torre has one great game left in him, it will be Sunday. Uh, same thing with Silva, same thing with Aguero. So now you're talking me back off the fence. <laughs> I think City's going to win. Programming note, everybody, we are going to be coming to you with a show on Sunday, reviewing the action in the Premier League, but with the international break coming coming up we are going to take a small vacation midweek next week and we'll have a weekend show after that but until this weekend's review show i'm richard farley for everybody at the world soccer talk site kartik enjoy your football
The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at worldsoccertalk.com. <laughs>